ya! Welcome to Sniper's Rest. Sniper's Rest is the last best rest stop in the here and there. The place between where you're coming from and where you're going. I am Sniper Shadow and I reside here in Sniper's Rest as a guide and custodian to those who pass through here. I visit the world within the multiverse often, but I am always here to guide and care for the travellers such as yourself that pass through the here and there. Welcome my friend! The day of spook is almost upon us. All Hallows Eve. What are your plans this year? Well, whatever you're up to, I do so hope you enjoy it, my friend. I shall be spending this year with a spooky book. Perhaps I shall spend some time in the Minecraft dimension. I've been working on a project there lately. Please take a rest here before continuing on your journey. Frank's off in the garden today, helping our dear friend and very good farmer tend to the plants and animals that reside there. Frank ever so loves to help, even if he's not very good at it. Today we continue a journey to the center of the earth by Jules Verne. We left our explorers in a confused state last week. They appear to have ended up back where they started. Do they continue? Do they turn back? Let's find out. Chapter 37, The Lindenbrock Museum of Geology. How shall I describe the strange series of passions which in succession shook the breast of Professor Lindenbrock? First, stupefaction. Then, incredulously, lastly, a downright burst of rage. I had never seen the man so put out of countenance and so disturbed. The fatigues of our passage across, the dangers met, had all to begin over again. We had gone backwards instead of forwards, but my uncle rapidly recovered himself. Aha! Will fate play tricks upon me? Will the elements lay plots against me? Shall fire, air, and water make a combined attack against me? While they shall know what a determined man can do, I will not yield. I will not stir a single foot backwards, and it will be seen whether man or nature is to have the upper hand. Wrecked upon the rock, angry and threatening, Otto Lindenbrock was a rather grotesque, fierce parody upon the fierce Achilles defying the lightning. But I thought it is my duty to interpose and attempt to lay some restraint upon this unmeasured fanaticism. Just listen to me, I said firmly. Ambition must have a limit somewhere. We cannot perform impossibilities. We are not at all fit for another sea voyage. Who would dream of undertaking a voyage of 500 leagues upon a heap of rotten planks? With a blanket in rags for a sail a stick for a mast, and fierce winds in our teeth. We cannot steer, we shall be buffeted by the tempests, and we should be fools and madmen to attempt to cross a second time. I was able to develop this series of unanswerable reasons for ten minutes without interruption. Not that the professor was paying any respectful attention to his nephew's arguments, but because he was deaf to my all of my eloquence. To the raft! he shouted. Such was his only reply. It was no use for me to entreat, supplicate, get angry, or do anything else in the way of opposition. It would only have been opposing a will harder than granite rock. Hans was finished with the repairs of the raft. One would have thought that this strange being was guessing at my uncle's intentions. With a few more pieces of Strutterbrand, he had refitted our vessel. A sail already hung from the new mast, 
and the wind was playing in its waving folds. The professor said a few words to the guide, and immediately he put everything on board and arranged every necessary for our departure. The air was clear, and the northwest wind blew steadily. What could I do? Could I stand against the two? It was impossible. But if Hans had taken my side... But no, it was not to be. The Icelander seemed to have renounced all will of his own, and made a vow to forget and deny himself. I could get nothing out of a servant so feudalized, as it were, to his master. My only course was to proceed. I was therefore going with as much resignation as I could find to resume my accustomed place on the raft when my uncle laid his hand upon my shoulder. We shall not sail until tomorrow, he said. I made a movement intended to express resignation. I must neglect nothing, he said. And since my fate has driven me on this part of the coast, I will not leave it until I have examined it. To understand what followed, it must be borne in a mind that through circumstances hereafter to be explained, we were not really where the professor was supposed we were. In fact, we were not upon the north shore of the sea. Now let us start upon fresh discoveries, I said. And leaving Hans to his work, we started off together. The space between the water and the foot of the cliffs was considerable. It took half an hour to bring us to the wall of rock. We trampled under our feet numberless shells of all the forms and size which existed in the earliest ages of the world. They had been the coverings of those gigantic glyptodons, or armadillos, of the Pliocene period, of which the modern tortoise is but a miniature representative. The soil was besides this scattered with stony fragments, boulders rounded by water action, and ridged up in successive lines. I was therefore led to the conclusion that at one time the sea must have covered the ground on which we were treading. On the loose and scattered rocks, now out of the reach of the highest tides, the waves had left manifest traces of their power to wear their way into the hardest stone. This might up to a certain point explain the existence of an ocean forty leagues beneath the surface of the globe, but in my opinion this liquid mass would be lost by degrees farther and farther within the interior of the earth, and it certainly had its origin in the waters of the ocean overhead, which had made their way hither through some fissure. Yet it must be believed that the fissure is now closed, and that all this cavern, or immersed reservoir, was filled in a very short time. Perhaps even this water, subjected to the fierce action of central heat, had been partly resolved to vapour. This would explain the existence of those clouds suspended over our heads and the development of that electricity which raised such tempests within the bowels of the earth. This theory of phenomena we had witnessed seemed satisfactory to me, for however great and stupendous the phenomena of nature, fixed physical laws will, or may, always explain them. We were therefore walking upon sedimentary soil, the deposits of water of former ages, the professor was carefully examining every little fissure in the rocks. Wherever he saw a hole, he always wanted to know the depth of it. To him this was important. We had traversed the shores of the Lindenbrock Sea for a mile, 
when we observed a sudden change in the appearance of the soil. It seemed upset, contorted and convulsed, by a violent upheaval of the lower strata. In many places depressions or elevations gave witness to some tremendous power affecting the dislocation of the strata. We moved with difficulty across these granite fissures and chasms, mingled with silics, crystals of quartz, and alluvial deposits, when a field, nay, more than a field, a vast plain of bleached bones lay spread before us. It seemed like an immense cemetery, where the remains of twenty ages mingled their dust together. Huge mounds of bony fragments rose stage after stage in the distance. They undulated away to the limits of the horizon, and melted in the distance in a faint haze. There within three square miles were accumulated the materials for a complete history of the animal life of ages, a history scarcely outlined in too recent strata of the inhabited world. But an impatient curiosity impelled our steps, crackling and rattling. Our feet were trampling on the remains of prehistoric animals and interesting fossils, the possession of which is a matter of rivalry and contention between the museums of great cities. A thousand cuviers could never have reconstructed the organic remains deposited in this magnificent and unparalleled collection. I stood amazed. My uncle had unlifted his long arms to the vault which was our sky, his mouth gaping wide, his eyes flashing behind his shining spectacles, his head balancing with an up-and-down motion, his whole attitude detonated unlimited astonishment. Here he stood, facing an immense collection of scattered lipotheria, microtheria, lifodida, anotheria, megatheria, mastodons, prolothipicae, peridactyls, and all kinds of extinct monsters here assembled together for his special satisfaction. Fancy and enthusiastic bibliomaniac suddenly brought into the midst of the famous Alexandrian library, burnt by Omar and restored by a miracle from its ashes. Just such a crazed enthusiast was my uncle, Professor Lindenbrock. But more was to come when, with a rushing through clouds of bone dust, he laid upon a single bare skull and cried with a voice trembling with excitement. Axel! Axel, a human head! A human skull, I cried, no less astonished. Yes, nephew! Ah! M. Milne Edwards! Ah! M. de Quarterfage! How you wish you were standing here at the side of Otto Lindenbrock! Chapter 38 The Professor in His Chair Again understand this apostrophe of my uncle's made to absent french savants it will be necessary to allude to an event of high importance in the paleontological point of view which had occurred a little while before our departure on the twenty eighth of march eighteen sixty three some excavators working under the direction of m boucher de parence in the stone quarries of molinguigong near abbeville in the department of Semen found a human jawbone fourteen feet beneath the surface. It was the first fossil of this nature that had ever been brought to light. Not far distant were found stone hatchets and flint arrowheads stained and encased by the lapse of time with a uniform coat of rust. The noise of this discovery was very great, not in France alone, but in England and in Germany. 
several savants of the French Institute, among them M. M. Milne Edwards and de Quatrefages, saw at once the importance of this discovery, proved to demonstration the geniuses of this bone in question, and became the most ardent defendants in what the English call the trial of the jawbone. To the geologists of the United Kingdom, who believed the certainty of the fact, Messrs. Falconer, Busk, Carpenter and others, scientific Germans, were soon joined, and among them, the forwardest and most fiery and most enthusiastic was my uncle Lindenbrock. Therefore, the geniuses of a fossil human relic of the Quaternary period seem to be incontestably proved and admitted. It is true that this theory, with the most obstinate opponent, in M. L. E. de Beaumont, this high authority maintained that the soil of Moulin Quagong was not juvial at all, but was of much more recent formation, and agreeing in that, with curvier, he refused to admit that the human species could be contemporary with the animals of the quaternary period. My uncle Lindenbrook, along with the great body of geologists, had maintained his ground, disrupted, and argued until M. Ellie de Beaumont stood almost alone in his opinion. We all knew these details, but were not aware that since our departure the question had advanced to farther stages. Other similar maxillaries, though belonging to individuals of various types and different nations, were found in the loose grey soil of a certain grotto in France, Switzerland, and Belgium, as well as weapons, tools, earthen utensils, bones of children and adults. Therefore, the existence of man in the Quaternary period seemed to become daily more certain. Nor was this all. Fresh discoveries of remains in the Pleiocene formation had emboldened other geologists to refer back to human species to a higher antiquity still. It is true that these remains were not human bones, but objects bearing the traces of his handiwork, such as fossil leg bones of animals, sculpted and carved evidently by the hands of man. Thus, at one bound, the record of the existence of man receded far back into the history of the ages past. He was a predecessor of the Mastodon. He was a contemporary of the Southern Elephant. He lived a hundred thousand years ago, when, according to geologists, the Pleiocene formation was in progress. Such, then, was a state of paleontological science, and what we knew of it was sufficient to explain our behaviour in the presence of this stupendous Golgotha. Any one may now understand the frenzied excitement of my uncle when, twenty yards farther on, he found himself face to face with a primitive man. It was a perfectly recognisable human body, had some particular soil, that of the cemetery of St. Michael's at Bordadox, presented it thus for so many ages. It might be so. But this dried corpse, with its parchment-like skin drawn tightly over the bony frame, the limbs still preserving their shape, sound teeth, abundant hair, and finger and toenails of frightful length, this desiccated mummy startled us by appearing just as it had lived countless ages ago. I stood mute before this apparition of remote antiquity. My uncle, usually so glorious, was struck dumb likewise. We raised the body. We stood it up against a rock. It seemed to stare at us out of its empty orbits. We sounded with our knuckles his hollow frame. 
After some moments' silence, the professor was himself again. Otto Lindenbrock, yielding to his nature, forgot all of the circumstances of our eventful journey, forgot where we were standing, forgot the vaulted cabin which contained us. No doubt he was in mind back again in his Johannum, holding forth to his pupils, for he assumed his learned air, and addressing himself to an imaginary audience, he proceeded thus. Gentlemen, I have the honour to introduce you to a man of the quaternary or post-tertiary system. Eminent geologists have denied his existence. Others no less eminent have affirmed it. The St. Thomases of paleontology, if they were here, might now touch him with their fingers and would be obliged to acknowledge their error. I am quite aware that the science has to be on its guard with discoveries of this kind. I know what capital enterprising individuals like Barnum have made out of fossil men. I have heard the tale of the knee pan of Ajax, the pretend body of Orestes, claimed to have been found by the Spartans, and of the body of Asterius, ten cubits long, of which the Pornassus speak. I have read the reports of the skeleton of Trampani found in the 14th century, which was at the time identified as that of Polyphemus and the history of the giant unearthed in the 16th century near Palermo. You know, as well as I do, gentlemen, that the analysis made at the Le Chiron in 1577 of those huge bones, which the celebrated Dr. Felix Plater affirmed to be those of a giant 19 feet high, have gone through the treaties of Cassianon, and all those memoirs, pamphlets, answers and rejoiners published respected the skeleton of Tetiobosius, the invader of Gaul, dug out of a sandpit in the Jufrenine in 1613. In the 18th century, I would have stood up for Schwartz's preanimate man against Peter Campert. I have pursued a writing entitled Gigant and here is where my uncle's unfortunate infirmary met him, that being unable in public to pronounce hard words. The pamphlet entitled Gigant, he could get no further. Gigantia, it could not be done. The unlucky word would not come out. At the Johannum, there would have been a laugh. Gigantoteliogi. At last the professor burst out, between two words, which I shall not record here. Then, rushing on with renewed vigour and great animation. Yes, gentlemen, I know all these things and more. I know that the Curvier and Blumenbach have recognised these bones as nothing more remarkable than the bones of the mammoth and other mammals of the post-tertiary period. But in the presence of this specimen, to doubt would be to insult science. There stands the body. You may see it, touch it. It is not a mere skeleton. It is an entire body preserved for a purely anthropological end and purpose. I was good enough not to contradict this startling assertion. If I could only wash it in a solution of sulfuric acid, pursued my uncle, I should be able to clear it from all the earthly particles and the shells which are encrusted about it. 
but I do not possess that valuable solvent. Yet, such as it is, the body shall tell us its own wonderful story. Here the professor lay hold of the fossil skeleton and handled it with the skill of a dexterous showman. You see, he said, that is not six feet long, and that we are still separated by a long interval from the pretended race of giants. As for the family to which it belongs, it is evidently Caucasian. It is the white race, our own. The skull of this fossil is a regular oval rather than ovoid. It exhibits no prominent cheekbones, no projecting jaws. It presents no appearance that pronagthism which diminishes the facial angle. Measure that angle. It's nearly 90 degrees, but I will go further in my deductions, and I will affirm that this specimen is of the human family and is of the geopatic race, which has since spread from the Indies to the Atlantic. Don't smile, gentlemen. Yes, he pursued with animation. This is a fossil man, the contemporary of the mastodons whose remains fill this amphitheatre. But if you ask me how he came here, how those strata on which he lay slipped down into this enormous hollow in the globe, I confess I cannot answer that question. No doubt, in the post-tertiary period, considerable commotions were still disturbing the crust of the earth. The long-continued cooling of the globe produced chasms, fissures, clefts, and faults, into which, very probably, portions of the upper crust may have fallen. I make no rash assertions, but there is man surrounded by his own works, by hatchets, by flint arrowheads, which are the characteristics of the Stone Age. Unless he came here, like myself, as a tourist on a visit, and as a pioneer of science, I can entertain no doubt the authenticity of his remote origin. The professor ceased to speak, and the audience broke out into loud, unanimous applause. For, of course, my uncle was right, and wiser men than his nephew would have some trouble to refute his statements. Another remarkable thing, this fossil body was not only one in the immense catacomb. We come upon other bodies at every other step in this mortal dust. My uncle might select the most curious of these specimens to demolish the incredulity of sceptics. In fact, it was wonderful spectacle that these generations of men and animals commingled in common cemetery. Then, one very serious question arose presently, which we scarcely dared to suggest. Had all those creatures slided through the great fissure in the crust of the earth, down to the shores of the Lindenbrock Sea, where they were dead and turning to dust? Or had they lived, grown, and died here in the subterranean world under a false sky, just like the inhabitants of the upper earth? Until present time, we had seen alive only marine monsters and fish. Might not some living man of native of the abyss be yet a wanderer below this desert strand? Chapter 39. Forest Scenery Illuminated by Electricity For another half an hour we trod upon pavement of bones. We pushed on, impelled by a burning curiosity. What other marvels did this cavern contain? What new treasures lay here for science to unfold? I was prepared for any surprise. My imagination was ready for any astonishment, however astounding. We had long lost sight of the seashore behind the hills of bones. 
the rash professor, careless of losing his way, hurried me forward. We advanced in silence, bathed in the luminous electric fluid. By some phenomenon, which I am unable to explain, it lighted up all sides of every object equally. Such was its diffusiveness, that there being no central point from which the light emanated, that shadows no longer existed. You might have thought yourself under the rays of a vertical sun in a tropical region at noonday and at the height of summer. No vapour was visible. The rocks, the distant mountains, a few isolated clumps of forest trees in the distance, presented a weird and wonderful aspect under these totally new conditions of a universal diffusion of light. We were like Hoffman's shadowless man. After walking a mile, we reached the outskirts of a vast forest, but not one of those forests of fungi which bordered on Port Grauben. Here was the vegetation of the tertiary period in its fullest blaze of magnificence. Tall palms belonging to species no longer living, splendid palmacites, firs, yews, cypress trees, thedges, representations of conifers, all linked together by tangled networks of long climbing plants. A soft carpet of moss and hepicatus luxuriously clothed in the soil. A few sparkling streams ran almost in silence under what would have been the shades of trees, but that there was no shadow. On their banks grew tree ferns similar to those we grow in hothouses, but a remarkable feature was the total absence of colour in all those trees, shrubs and plants, growing without the life-giving heat and light of the sun. Everything seemed mixed up and confused in one uniform grey silver or light brown tint, that of a fading and faded leaves. Not a green leaf anywhere, and flowers which were abundant enough in the tertiary period, which gave birth to flowers, looked like brown paper flowers without colour or scent. My uncle Lindenbrock ventured to penetrate under this colossal grove. I followed him, not without fear. Since nature had here provided vegetable nourishment, why should not the terrible mammals be there too? I perceived in the broad clearings left by fallen trees, decayed with age, legumous plants, acneri, ruberi, and other edible shrubs, dear to ruminant animals at every period. Then I observed, mingled together in confusion, the trees of countries far apart on the surface of the globe. The oak and palm were growing side by side, the Australian eucalyptus leaned against the Norwegian pine. The birch tree of the Norse mingled its foliages with the New Zealand Kirikas. It was enough to distance the most indigenous classifier of tertiary botany. Suddenly I halted. I drew back my uncle. The diffused light revealed the smallest object in the dense and di di distant thickets. I had thought I saw. No. I did see with my own eyes vast colossal forms moving amongst the trees. They were gigantic animals. It was a herd of mastodons, not fossil remains, but living and resembling those the bones of which were found in the marshes of Ohio in 1801. I saw huge elephants whose long flexible trunks were grouting and turning up the soil under the trees like a legion of serpents. I could hear the crashing noise of their long ivory tusks boring into the decaying trunks. The bows cracked and the leaves torn away by cartloads went down the cavernous throats of the vast brutes. So then, the dream in which I had had a vision, 
of the prehistoric world of the tertiary and post-tertiary periods was now realized and there we were alone in the bowels of the earth at the mercy of its wild inhabitants my uncle was gazing with intense and eager interest come on he said seizing my arm forward forward no i will not i cried we have no firearms what could we do in the midst of a herd of these four-footed giants come away uncle come no human being may with safety dare the anger of these monstrous beasts no human creature replied my uncle in a lower voice you are wrong axel look look down there i fancy i see a living creature similar to ourselves it is a man i looked shaking my head incredulously but though at first i was unbelieving i had to yield to the evidence of my senses in fact at a distance of a quarter mile leaning against the trunk of a gigantic curry stood a human being the protus of those subterranean regions a new son of neptune watching this countless herd of mastodons yes truly huger still himself it was no longer a fossil being like him whose dried remains we had easily lifted up in the field of bones it was a giant able to control those monsters in stature he was at least twelve feet high his head huge and unshapely as a buffalo's was half hidden in the thick and tangled growth of his unkempt hair it most resembled the mane of the primitive elephant in his hand he wielded with ease an enormous bow a staff worthy of this shepherd of the geological period we stood petrified and speechless with amazement but he might see us we must fly do come i said to my uncle who for once allowed himself to be persuaded in another quarter of an hour our nimble heels had carried us beyond the reach of this horrible monster and yet now that i can reflect quietly now that my spirit has grown calm again now that months have slipped by since this strange and supernatural meeting what am i to think what am i to believe i must conclude that it was impossible that our senses had been deceived that our eyes did not see what we supposed they saw no human being lives in this subterranean world no generation of men dwells in those inferior caverns of the globe unknown to and unconnected with the inhabitants of the surface it is absurd to believe it i had rather admit it may have been some animal whose structure resembled the human some ape or baboon of the early geological ages some protopythia or some mesopythia some early or middle ape like that discovered by mr Lartet in the bone cave of sansu but this creature surpassed in stature all the measurements known in modern paleontology but that man a living man and therefore whose generations doubtless besides should be buried there in the bowels of the earth is impossible however we left behind us the luminous forest dumb with astonishment overwhelmed and struck down with a terror which amounted to stupefaction we kept running on for the fear of the horrible monster might be on our track it was a flight a fall like the fearful pulling and dragging which is peculiar to nightmare instinctively we got back to the lindenbrock sea and i cannot say to what vagrains my mind would have carried me but for a circumstances which brought me back to a practical matter although i was certain that we were now treading upon soil not hitherto touched by our feet 
I often perceived groups of rocks which reminded me of those about Port Grauben. Besides, this seemed to confirm the indications of the needle, and to show that we had against our will returned to the north of the Lindenbrock Sea. Occasionally we felt quite convinced. Brooks and waterfalls were tumbling everywhere from the projections in the rocks. I thought I recognised the bed of Sturbrand, our faithful Hansbach, and the grotto in which I had recovered life and consciousness. Then a few paces farther on, the arrangement of the cliffs, the appearance of an unrecognised stream, or a strange outline of rock, came to throw me again into doubt. I communicated my doubts to my uncle. Like myself, he hesitated. He could recognise nothing against this monotonous scene. Evidently, said I, we have not landed again at our original starting point, but the storm has carried us a little higher, and if we follow the shore we shall find Port Grauben. If that is the case, then it will be useless to continue our exploration, and we had better return to our raft. But Axel, are you not mistaken? It is difficult to speak decidedly, uncle, for all these rocks look so very much alike. Yet I think I recognise the potonomy at the foot of which Hans constructed our launch. We must be very near the little port, if indeed this is not it, I added, examining the creek, which I thought I recognised. No, Axel, we should at least find our own traces, and I see nothing. But I do see, I cried, darting upon an object on lying on the sand. I showed my uncle a rusty dagger which I had just picked up. Come, said he, had you this weapon with you? I, no, certainly, but you, perhaps. Not that I am aware, said the professor. I have never had this object in my possession. Well, this is strange. No, Axel, it is very simple. The Icelanders often wear arms of this kind. This must have belonged to Hans, and he has lost it. I shook my head. Hans had never had an object like this in his possession. Did it not belong to some pre-adamant warrior, I cried, to some living man, contemporary, with the huge cattle driver? But no, this is not a relic of the Stone Age. It is not even of the Iron Age. This blade is steel. My uncle stopped me abruptly, on my way to a dissertation which would have taken me a long way, and said coolly, Be calm, Axel, and reasonable. This dagger belongs to the sixteenth century. It is a poignard. Such a gentleman carried it on their belts to give the coup de grace. Its origin is Spanish. It was never either yours or mine or the hunter's, nor did it belong to any of those human beings who may or may not inhabit this inner world. See, it was never jagged, like this, by cutting men's throats. This blade is coated with rust, neither a day nor a year nor a hundred years old. The professor was getting excited, in according to his wont, and was allowing his imagination to run away with him. Axel, we are on the way towards a grand discovery. This blade has been left on the strand from one to three hundred years. It has blunted its edge upon the rocks that fringe this subterranean sea. But it has come alone. It has not twisted itself out of shape. Someone has been here before us. Yes, a man has. And who was that man? A man who engraved his name somewhere with that dagger. A man who wants more to mark the way to the centre of the earth. Let us look about. Look about! And, wonderfully interested, we peered all the way along the high wall, peeping into every fissure which might be open out into a gallery. So we arrived 
at a place where the shore was much narrowed. Here the sea came up to lap the foot of the cliff, leaving a passage no wider than a couple of yards between two boldly projecting rocks appeared the mouth of a dark tunnel. There, upon this granite slab, appearing two mysterious graven letters, halfway eaten by time, there were initials of a bold and daring traveller. A.S., shouted my uncle, Arnie Skinnarsum, Arnie Skinnarsum everywhere. Chapter 40 Preparations for Blasting a Passage to the Centre of the Earth Since the start upon this marvellous pilgrimage, I had been through so many astonishments that I might as well be excused for thinking myself well hardened against any further surprise. Yet at the sight of these two letters, engraved on this spot three hundred years ago, I stood aghast in dumb amazement. Not only were the initials of the learned alchemist visible upon the living rock, but there lay the iron point with which the letters had been engraved. I could no longer doubt the existence of that wonderful traveller, and the fact of his unparalleled journey without the most glaring incredulity. Whilst these reflections were occupying me, Professor Lindenbrock had launched into a somewhat rhapsodical eulogium, of which Arnis Ganassum was, of course, the hero. "'Thou marvellous genius!' he cried. "'Thou hast not forgotten one indication which might serve to lay open to mortals the road through the terrestrial crust.' and thy fellow creatures may even now after the lapse of three centuries again trace thy footsteps through these deep and darksome ways you reserve the contemplation of these wonders for the eyes besides your own your name from stage to stage leads the bold follower in your footsteps to the very centre of our planet's core and there again we shall find your own name written with your own hand. I will too inscribe my name upon this dark granite page. But forever henceforth, let this cape that advances into the sea, discovered by yourself to be known and your own illustrious name, Cape Skinnarsum. Such were the glowing words of panegyric which fell upon my attentive ear and I could not resist the sentiment of enthusiasm with which I too was infected. The fire of zeal kindled afresh in me. I forgot everything. I dismissed from my mind the past perils of the journey, the future danger of our return, that which another had done, I suppose we might do also. And nothing that was not superhuman appeared impossible to me. Forward! forward i cried i was already darting down the gloomy tunnel when the professor stopped me he the man of impulse counselled patience and coolness let us first return to hans he said and bring the raft to this spot i obeyed not without dissatisfaction and passed out rapidly among the rocks on the shore i said uncle do you know it seems to me that circumstances have wonderfully befriended us hitherto? You think so, Axel? No doubt. Even the tempest has put us on the right way. Blessings on that storm. It has brought us back to this coast from which fine weather would have carried us far away. Suppose we had touched with our prow, the prow of a rudder, 
the southern shore of the Lindenbrock Sea. What would have become of us? We should have never seen the name of Skanasum, and we should at this moment be imprisoned on a rock-bound, impassable coast. Yes, Axel, it is providential that while supposing we were steering south, we should have just gone back north at the Cape of Skanasum. I must say, this is astonishing, and I feel I have no way to explain it. What does that signify, Uncle? Our business is not to explain facts, but to use them. Certainly, but... Well, Uncle, we are going to resume the northern route and pass under the north countries of Europe, under Sweden, Russia, Siberia, who knows where, instead of burrowing under the deserts of Africa or perhaps the waves of the Atlantic, and that is all I want to know. Yes, you are right, Axel. It is all for the best, since we have left that weary horizontal sea which led us nowhere. Now we shall go down, down, down. Do you know that it is now only 1,500 leagues to the centre of the globe? Yes, that's all, I cried. Why, that's nothing. Let us start. March. All this crazy talk was going on still when we met the hunter. Everything was made ready for our instant departure. Every bit of cordage was put on board. We took our places, and with our sail set, Hans steered us along the coast to Cape Skanasum. The wind was unfavourable to a species of launch not calculated for shallow water. In many places we were obliged to push ourselves along with iron-pointed sticks. Often the sunken rocks just beneath the surface obliged us to deviate from our straight course. At last, after three hours of sailing, about six in the evening, we reached a place suitable for our landing. I jumped ashore and followed by my uncle and the Icelander. This short passage had not served to cool my ador. On the contrary, I even proposed to burn our ship to prevent the possibility of return. But my uncle would not consent to that. I thought him singularly lukewarm. At least, I said, don't let us lose a minute. Yes, yes, lad, he replied. But first let us examine this new gallery to see if we shall require our ladders. My uncle put his Rumkoff's apparatus in action. The raft moored on the shore was left alone. The mouth of the tunnel was not twenty yards from us, and our party, with myself at the head, made for it without a moment's delay. The aperture, which was almost round, was about five feet in diameter. The dark passage was cut out in the live rock and lined with a coat of eruptive matter, which formerly issued from it. The interior was level with the ground outside, so we were able to enter without difficulty. We were following a horizontal plane when, only six paces in, our progress was interrupted by an enormous block just across our way. "'Accursed rock!' I cried in a passion, finding myself suddenly confronted by an impassable object. Right and left we searched, in vain, for a way up and down, side to side. There was no getting any farther. I felt fearfully disappointed, and I would not admit that the obstacle was final. I stopped. I looked underneath the block, no opening, above, granite still. Hans passed his lamp over every portion of the barrier in vain. We must give up all hope of passing it. I sat down in despair. My uncle strode from side to side in the narrow passage. But how was it with Skanasum? I cried. Yes, said my uncle. Was he stopped by this stone barrier? 
No, no, I replied with animation. This fragment of rock has been shaken down by some shock or convulsion, or by one of those magnetic storms which agitate these regions. It has blocked up the passage which lay open to him. Many years have elapsed since the return of Skanasum to the surface, and the fall of this huge fragment. It is not evident that this gallery was once way open to a course of lava, and that at that time there must have been a free passage. See, here are recent fissure groovings and channelings in the granite roof. This roof itself is formed from fragments of rocks carried down, of enormous stones, as if by some giant's hand. But at one time the appulsive force was greater than usual, and this block, like the falling of a keystone of a ruined arch, has slipped down to the ground and blocked up the way. It's an only an accidental obstruction, not met by Sclenasum, and if we don't destroy it, we shall be unworthy to reach the centre of the earth. Such was my sentence. The soul of the professor had passed into me. The genius of discovery possessed me wholly. I forgot the past. I scorned the future. I gave not a thought to the things of the surface of this globe into which I had dived. Its cities, its sunny plains, Hamburg and the Constrasi, even poor Grauben, who must have given up for lost, all were for the time dismissed from the pages of my memory. Well, cried my uncle, let us make our way with the pickaxes. It is too hard for pickaxes. Well, then the spade. That would take us too long. Well, then what? Why, gunpowder, to be sure. Let us mine the obstacle and blow it up. Oh, yes. It's only a bit of rock to blast. Hans, to work, cried my uncle. The Icelander returned to the raft and soon came back with an iron bar, which he made use of to bore a hole for the charge. This was no easy work. A hole was to be made large enough to hold 50 pounds of gun cotton, whose expansive force is four times that of gunpowder. I was terribly excited. Whilst Hans was at work, I was actively helping my uncle to prepare a slow match of wetted powder encased in linen. This will do it, I said. It will, replied my uncle. By midnight, our mining operations were over. The charge was rammed into the hole, and the slow match uncoiled along the gallery showed its end outside the opening. A spark would now develop the whole of our preparations into activity. Tomorrow, said the professor. I had to be resigned and wait six long hours. That concludes our tale for this week, my friend. Please return next week and we will continue our journey through A Journey to the Centre of the Earth by Jules Verne. If you wish to rest here some more, please find a space that suits you. Whether you curl up by the fire, partake in some food and beverages in our kitchen, take a nap in one of our many rooms, or take a stroll around the garden. Please know you are always welcome at Sniper's Rest, my friend. If you are continuing your journey, the multiverse has many daring and scaring options for you today. Happy spooky season, my friend. To the north, the place between life and death awaits. Dark creatures haunt every aspect of the place between places. Can you save this land from doom? Or will you be lost in the silence? To the west, a ship drifts into port. The cargo and crew are strangely missing. A ghost ship. You as the city's detective are tasked with finding out what happened. You don't believe in ghosts and fairy tales. 
but maybe you should. To the east, trapped beneath the ocean, the food is running low and there is no way to get the radio functional and the machines have developed interpentant thought. An omnipresent AI lurks around every bend, corrupt human, twisted experiments and horrible creations. You have no means of fighting back. So run. And if you are making your own way out there, good luck my friend. Wherever you end up, wherever you come from, wherever you're going, thank you for spending some time here with us at Sniper's Rest. Remember to take care of yourself, be kind to others, hydrate, take a moment to look out into the world and marvel at how incredible it all is. How incredible you are, friend. Until next time, please take care on your way.